the book of Isaiah. This book is in three parts. 1 to 39 is basically relating to the 8th century BCE. So the time when the Assyrians are the world power that is threatening Israel-Judah. The middle section, chapters 40 to 55, are set during the Babylonian exile, but near the end of the Babylonian exile, round about 540-ish, BCE. And we know that because the character Cyrus is mentioned by name. Do you know who Cyrus was? King of where? Persia. He's the Persian emperor and he rose to power started round about 539. 537 is the Cyrus Cylinder that allowed people to return. So we've got a historical character mentioned. And then chapters 56 to 66... Presuppose that God's people are in the land. So you're post-exile. It's a bit more jumbled, that latter section. It's not clear whether you've got the second temple or whether you're about to build one or thinking building one. So it's a bit more mixed. And it probably goes on for quite a long while into that Persian period of time with what it's talking about. But there are connections across the whole book of Isaiah that make it clear that this is not three distinct sets of material that have just been butt-ended, but that in some way the early stuff has been reinterpreted and added to in the exilic period, and then all of that has been reinterpreted and added to in a post-exilic period of time. But we are spanning several hundred years. The figure of Isaiah isn't mentioned beyond chapters 1 to 39. And he's barely mentioned in 1 to 39, other than in a few prose passages and in an occasional heading that this was the oracle, this was the vision so-and-so saw and pronounced, and then you get a whole chapter or two chapters of a poetic something or other that doesn't make any mention of the prophet. You do find him mentioned in chapters 36 to 39, which interestingly parallel 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 13 through to chapter 20 verse 19. 
So there's a chunk in Kings and there's a chunk of narrative in the book of Isaiah that are identical except that there's a long poem which is a prayer of Isaiah inserted in the book of Isaiah. One of the things I could have said about Jeremiah was chapter 52 of Jeremiah is identical to the end of the book of Kings. But chapter 52 of Jeremiah that talks about the downfall of Jerusalem repeats more or less what they said in chapter 39 about the downfall of Jerusalem. So which one of these books is borrowing material from somewhere else and utilising it? You know, it is virtually word for word the same when I'm saying it parallels. It is clear that it's not two totally independent writers who've come up with the same thing. They are using material that is available. And scholars will debate till kingdom come as to which one had it first. You're possibly aware that there's some words in Isaiah. Um, it's the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established higher than anywhere else. In chapter 2 of Isaiah is also in Micah chapter 4. With just a tiny bit of difference. Which one had it first? Or did they both get it from somewhere else? There's a lot of shared material. So, Isaiah, the character, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? The vision that he saw concerning what? Judah and Jerusalem. So we're specifically focusing in on the southern kingdom. In the days of, and we have got four kings of Judah mentioned. That is the period of time of what we would call the Syro-Ephraimite War, which is when Israel and Judah took opposite sides with Syria as to whether or not you submit to Assyria or make alliances with Assyria or do you make alliances and pay tributes with Egypt and all this political shenanigans are going on and sometimes Israel and Judah are on opposite sides and sometimes they're on the same side politically down to the downfall of the northern kingdom in 722 the siege of Jerusalem and Hezekiah is 697. So we just into Judah continuing with the siege having ended and there's a hope for something to carry on as an independent nation with Assyria having turned tail and gone away again. So that's what we're being given as the context for the prophet Isaiah. His vision has already been mentioned. Chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, what does he see or what does it remind you of of what we've already spoken about this afternoon? King? The throne? Which person have I already spoken about who had a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne? Yep, yeah, but I said that was modelled on? Micaiah. Micaiah in the Divine Council. It's the language of that 
prophet, Micaiah, divine counsel, God on the throne. Here it is clear that we're looking into the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now, nobody can look into the Holy of Holies. So it's visionary, imaginary. And how big is God? Little or big? Enormous. Because even the hem of his robe fills the whole temple. We're being given something of a magnificent, enormous, huge God. And the prophet is invited. Who will go? And the prophet says, send me. And in verse 9, what's he told? Now... I would want to say that we need to to come at this with a critical way of looking at the material and say this is not what he was told to do this is real realism this is what you will experience as you go and speak to them, they will not understand. Because people don't. No matter how hard you try to communicate God's word, they won't. They'll stop their ears. They'll shut their eyes. So it's a suggestion that the prophetic calling is a tough one. But this is what you are called to do. But that's his calling and his commissioning as a prophet. Now, chapter 7, whose days are we in? The days of Ahaz. So we've shifted on quite a way. We've skipped Jotham, and we're now in the time of Ahaz. And this is talking about the political scenario. Aram equals Syria. Ephraim equals the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ahaz is told... Don't be afraid. These two smouldering stumps of firebrands, and that's the king of Syria and the king of northern kingdom of Israel, they're plotting against you, but it won't come to pass. They are not the powers. You need to stand firm in faith, otherwise you won't stand at all. Verse 9. Here's a sign. And what is the sign that's being given in verse 14? The Hebrew actually has a present meaning. It is not a future meaning. And it's a young woman is with child and there's the concept of it being a virgin comes purely from the Greek because the Greek doesn't have a different word for a virgin and a young woman who hasn't had a child note the difference young woman who's not had a child not a young woman who's not had sex Whereas Hebrew does. And it's a young woman. And what is almost certainly being spoken of here, in this context, to Ahaz is, look at that woman over there, that young woman who is pregnant. By the time that child has been born and has been weaned, what you're fearing will all have gone in a short time, there will be sign for you as this child is weaned that God is with you and that by being faithful to God, all is okay. 
And it is probably the princess or the, the, or, or the queen and the child that's going to be born is probably Hezekiah. So we're talking about immediacy and here is a sign to reassure you that in a short number of years all these threats that there are will have been resolved and you need not be fearful. Chapter 8, you've got something very similar about the prophet. And it talks about going to the prophetess, probably meaning his wife. And she's conceiving and bearing a son and the name of that child is one that predicts that there is going to be trouble, but there's going to be hope afterwards. So those couple of chapters are very much about the prophet speaking to the king, challenging the king not to put his trust in the political alliances but to believe in God and to be faithful to God and God's ways and trust God to sort it out. Now, there's a naivety in that. You know, we can't just sit on our backsides and expect God to sort out all the problems for us and us do nothing whatsoever. But it is a question about live in accordance with God's ways faithfully is what we're called to do and to trust and not to look for quick fixes, short-term solutions and to put our trust in the powers of this world as having all the answers. And that there might be a need to go through a wilderness period but the God whom we know, who's a magnificent God and an eternal God, will bring us through to something good and better beyond that if we remain faithful. I'm not going to stay with First Isaiah any longer. Chapters 9 and 11 are ones that you know from Christmas time. You know, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You're familiar with that one. A shoot will come from the stock of Jesse. You're familiar with that one. We're going to shift on and we'll pick something of that up later. I will mention that in chapter 10, it talks of Assyria as being the rod of God's anger, which picks up something that one of you said in the last session, an understanding that God can work through the nations. But I want to go to chapter 40 to 55. Chapters 40 to 55, which are the exilic chapters. What does chapter 40 start with? Comfort my people, says your God. She served her term. Penalties paid. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Everything in these chapters say we're in exile. We've been in Babylon a long while. We've settled down. What happens when we settle down? We get complacent. 
If they went into exile, 597 or 587, those 10-year things, and we're now in 537, how many years has gone by? 50, 60 years. So who are the people? Are they the ones who went into exile? It's the next generation down or even the one after that. It's the children or the grandchildren of the ones who went out. So what will they have done? Settled down, integrated, married, got themselves sorted as to what they're doing. They didn't know their homeland in one sense, but they're not focusing on it, are they? They're not thinking tomorrow will be Jerusalem. The last thing they want is to be disturbed. What do you think their belief in God is at this stage? What did they think about the God of Israel? Where was the God of Israel? Didn't think much at all. Where, where did the God of Israel reside? Israel, Judah, where in particular? Temple. What's happened to the temple? It's been destroyed. They'd been promised the land to you and your descendants forever. Promise gone, so it seems. God will dwell in the temple, been flattened. So what's happened to God? Defeated. Someone of the throne of, uh, of the line of David will sit on the throne forever. What's happened to the monarchs? Gone. The last one was taken into prison in Babylon and died there. What do you think about God's promises? Not much. We're okay over here. There's apathy. Rather like our big wide world at the moment. Enormous apathy. Where is God? What's God doing? Who cares? That's very much what we're interacting with, isn't it? And this prophet of the exile comes in with a message of phenomenal hope and challenge. And it started comfort, comfort. Double imperative. And again and again, you get double imperatives. Arise, arise. Everything is double. You've paid double for your sins. There's a double urgency to do something about it. I think these chapters speak to us. There's a blooming double urgency that we do something about it rather than being complacent that... God's gone to sleep or gone walkabouts or God's forgotten us or is focusing somewhere else. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You know this bit, don't you? You know it from John the Baptist, don't you? But what's it talking about? What underlies that in the wilderness, prepare a way. Moses, in the wilderness. They went from slavery in Egypt to where? The promised land. Was it a straight journey? Went round and round in circles and up and down and problems and all sorts of things. This one's going to be straight. And the valleys come up and the hills come down and it's a straight blooming line. It's using Exodus imagery, but God is doing something new 
but it reminds you of what God has done in the past. You were slaves in Egypt. Are you slaves in Babylon? You're not slaves. You're free to go. It's just apathy that says we're not. We're comfortable here. You need to kick up the backside to go and do something. And it's nothing like as difficult for God to take you back. The only thing holding you back is you. It's yourselves, not God, of what God wants to do with you. Get yourself up there. So that's what's going on in chapter 40. Let's look at verse 25 in that chapter. Well, actually, no, verse 18 to start with. What's this prophet of the exile asking people to think about? The nature of God. Difference between God and a, an idol. And what's it basically saying about an idol? It's not much use, but more than that, hmm? they're made by human beings. It might look beautiful, but they're made by humans. Have you not been told from the beginning, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth, verse 22, it is what? He who sits above the circle of earth. Do you know what they imagined the world looked like? Flat earth with the dome of the firmament over it. And where was God? At the top. What can you see? Everything. You can't see into Sheol, but you can see everything. It's God who sits above the whole earth. Who brings princes to north and makes rulers of earth nothing. Who's got the power. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. What are we looking at now? Stars, the heavenly host, the stars. Babylonians thought that the stars were gods. And it's saying that the things in the heavens are made by God, created by God, God has brought them into being. God has named them. And all of them are there. Nothing is missing. It's exactly as it ought to be. See that verb created. Have you all got created in verse 26? And when you move down a little bit further in verse 28, have you got creator of the ends of the earth? Yes. It is this prophetic text that introduces the idea of God as creator. You get the verb create 18 times in these chapters. The only other place you get it is in Genesis 1 and 9. And the Genesis texts are later than the Isaiah text. God is always the subject of the verb create. It's a divine act. It is something that is beyond human doing. There's a magnificence to it. And it is verse 25, the Lord is the everlasting God. So, timeless. And the creator of what? The ends of the earth. What did they think about God's power before the exile? Who was God interested in? Israel and Judah and was concerned with the boundaries of Israel. It was a national God, a localised God. 
and they feared the Babylonians and their gods or the Assyrians and their gods and they were worshipping other gods and all those sorts of things. They took other gods as being real and powerful and influential. What is this prophet saying? The God of Israel is the God of everything, is the creator of everything. Is God conditioned by time? No. Is God limited to place? No. And if you turn with me to 45, don't lose where we are, but turn with me to 45.7. What does God do? Makes light and darkness, weal and woe, good and evil, I do everything. What does that say? Omnipotent? That there is no other power doing anything. Shove it to one side dualism. There is the one God who does everything. And if you weren't sure about that, look at verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Verse 6. I am the Lord and there is no other. Again and again and again. 45.22. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So what is this prophet wanting to say about God? He's the only one. What else about this God? Almighty. What else? Hmm? Turn to you've got to turn to God and be saved. But who? Everybody. It is not something that is just oh, you need to be from the tribe of this and you need to have gone there and then you need to have come back. There is a sense that this God is a God who is willing to welcome anybody who wants to turn to this God and put their trust in this God. This God is not parochial. Couldn't care less whether we're Anglicans or Catholics or United Reform or, dare I say it, Muslims or Jews or whatever else. This God is concerned about humanity and anybody who wants to turn to God, God is open to welcoming them. The ends of the earth and all time. There's a lot of reference in this book to the futility of idols and idol worship. Which group of people worshipped idols? The Babylonians. And you're sitting there in Babylon, and if somebody says it's time to go home, what's the immediate answer going to be from God's people? Possibly, but if you're being pushed as to why you ought to go home, who are you going to say? Why, what are you going to say? Why are you not going? Probably not. We'll leave our gods behind. But you're still it, lurking. There is a sense that the Babylonians put us here, and it's up to the Babylonians to let us go. And it's trying to show how stupid and powerless the Babylonians are. There's a wonderful passage in chapter 44. It's the one bit of prose, worship, uh, prose in this text. Verse 9. Those who make idols are nothing. Yeah. Verse 12. Who are we focusing on? A blacksmith who's shaping it with hammers and 
over the coals and all that sort of thing, yes? And the carpenter gets involved and all that kind of thing. And in verse 15, with the wood, part of it he takes and does what with it? Cooks with it and the other half he worships. I have heard that read in church in a terribly pious tone of voice instead of with the sarcasm that it demands. Look how idiotic this is of putting your trust in things that are man-made objects. There's no way they've got power to be helpful. And it's all speaking against those who are still half fearful of the Babylonians, still believing that they exercise power and authority over them, that we can't do anything, we'll offend them, they might oppress us in some way or another, and the prophet is wanting to make clear that no... There must have been a small group who maintained the faith, out of which the prophet is one of them. But there'd have been a real minority who were not being heeded, and of course they'd got no temple, and so they couldn't do any of the sacrifices or anything of that nature. But there must have been... Was there? I don't know, until we get second temple period. We just do not know. But the majority of these people in exile were not following the faith in any way, shape or form. They've become apathetic. And this prophet is coming in with a vision of God that is mind-blowing. And look what he's saying. This God is not a God who's been defeated. It's not a God who is only concerned with Israel and Judah and a small area of land. This is a God who is the creator of everything and timeless and wanting to interact with all the peoples of the earth. Chapter 42, here is my servant, my chosen. I've put my spirit upon him. What's this servant going to do? Bring justice to the nation. In what kind of a way? Quietly. Gently. Verse 4. Won't be discouraged. We'll keep going. Won't grow faint or be crushed. Why would you be crushed? Because people are not taking notice of you. They're trying to silence you, to oppress you, and all that sort of thing. But you won't stop until he's established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. Remember, flat earth with the waters of chaos around the edge. So that's the very edges. 49. Verse 3. You are my servant. Looking at the start of it, what kind of a person are we talking about? No, it's listen, you people far away. The Lord has called me while I was in my mother's womb. Who does that make you think of? It's Jeremiah, Moses again, isn't it? It's that prophetic idea. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's not a warrior image. That's somebody who speaks a challenging word. Shadow is handy hid me. He made me like a pot.
polished arrow and his quiver he hid me away. It's being prepared and nurtured for the time when you're going to do it. What does this prophetic figure say in verse 4? I'm not getting very far. You know, this really is not working. And look what comes next. I formed you and called you to bring Jacob and Israel back. That's to bring God's people back to God. But that's too light a thing for you just to bring God's people back to God. Verse 6, I give you as a a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The task that he was initially given of bringing God's people back to God, he's not yet done and he's feeling somewhat despondent. It's not, okay, we'll take that job away from you, never mind. It's have another one as well. An even bigger task to go beyond that and to go to the ends of the earth. We're getting this paradigm of a prophet, uh, I'm sorry, of a servant, a servant of God as someone who is called, appointed, and they're not named. And you get a model of a person who might be political, the model of somebody who is a prophet, the model of somebody who is a teacher or a more priestly role. You get the model of the suffering servant. You know those models. The gospel writers use those in telling the story of Jesus. But within this prophetic text... It's speaking to the people in exile and saying, you are the one who's to be the prophet servant. You are the one who is to be the teacher servant. You are the one who is to be the political servant. You are the one who may have to suffer in your faithfulness. Their models, not a particular individual and the suffering servant the sufferings already happened in this book he was despised not he will be he was so it might be that the nation of Judah that went into exile is being personified in that way it might be the king who suffered Jehoiakim who is being portrayed in that way so we've got these ideas of what you are called to be and what you are called to do. Look at the very end of chapter 44 and the beginning of 45. Who gets mentioned? Cyrus. He's my shepherd. He'll carry out my purpose. Who says of Jerusalem it shall be rebuilt. Cyrus is the one whom God is using to enable the exiles to go back. Who was the first person who led the people back? Well, Moses. So in some senses Cyrus is being called a shepherd carrying out God's purpose. But then it says first verse of chapter 45 thus says the Lord to his anointed that's the language of Messiah that's the Davidic promises being bestowed on Cyrus the Persian that's mind-blowing when you understood that your kings had to be of the family of Judah and the line of David. Here God is doing something radical and saying, I can continue my promises, but not in the way you expected. I can use somebody else to mediate my purposes to you. And you can see there is continuity 
in what I am doing. So you've got the servant who's got to take leadership within the community. You've got Cyrus, who's going to be the new political leader. And if you go to chapter 55, it starts with how everyone who thirsts come to the water. So it's addressed to everybody who wants to be refreshed by God. And in verse 3, Incline your ear, come to me, listen so you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. It's democratised. The whole people have got to take on the responsibilities that were David's of providing security and leadership for God's people. And I'm so conscious of time that we've got to shoot on. We get two chapters in this section of Isaiah. Chapter 47 is the personification of Babylon, who is portrayed as a princess, who's full of pride, who's brought low, and has to do the washing in the river. And chapter 54, which is Israel, either as the people or as the land, personified as a barren woman who was considered cursed by God, actually flourishing and having a family that is absolutely enormous. And you've got to keep expanding the tent to make it larger and larger for all the family that are coming in. So you've got the downfall of Babylon and the upsurge of a new Israel. But it's living in a tent, not in walls. A tent can move, a tent can be enlarged. A tent can welcome people who want to come in. Going back to tent, yes, links with Moses. We're going back to the land, we're going back, we're making those connections and it's a place where you can encounter God. You are to be a light to the nation. You are to witness to God. Most of this section is about the wonders of God and who God is and that God is ten times greater than anything you had ever thought or imagined before about God. Whatever you think God is capable of, that's only a glimmer of the true God. And whenever you think God is limited, you've got it wrong. And if you think anybody is beyond God's concern, you've got it wrong. God wants God's people in covenant relationship to go and make known the good news of what God is like and the blessings of God that God wants to share on everybody else. Covenant doesn't come to an end. Israel, God's people, have still got a distinctive relationship with God. But it's one of responsibility, not of privilege. Because you're in relationship with God, you're to make God known. You know more about God and you can make God known. And as you make God known, if those people want to come in, welcome them. The latter part of this book sadly shows that things don't always go quite how one would hope they would. Chapter 56 starts off by saying what? Maintain justice and do what is right. 
Happy is the one who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath. In this post-exilic period of time, it is Sabbath observance that actually marks you out as a member of God's community. Because that's not easy. Keeping the Sabbath means you've got to work at it, because the Persians don't do it. It's awkward to keep the Sabbath, so you do it if it matters to you. Like we'll find a way to come to church on whatever day of the week services are available if they matter to us, irrespective of what else is going on. If it matters, we'll be there. It's not the world that's wrong by putting other things on. It's our decision as to whether or not we put God first. Don't let the foreigner say God will separate me from his people. Don't let the eunuch say I'm not worth coming in. Nobody is to be rejected. We can't determine who the in crowd are. It's whether or not they're following God's ways and wanting to be part of God's people. You then get stuff about idolatry being futile. Um, in 58 you get true and false worship. That there can be an awful lot of show and you can do fasting and all sorts of things without it having any meaning. It's, is everything focusing on righteousness and justice or are we doing it for show? Because it makes us look good. And when you get to chapter 65, verse 13, what's being indicated there? There's a division in the community. There's two lots of people who are claiming to be God's true people. And those who are the servants are doing it right. And there's others who are claiming it and are going to get it in the neck. They've gone back to some of their old ways of legalism and hierarchies and failing to be concerned for righteousness and justice. And when we lose sight of that, that's when it all goes wrong. And their cycle starts all over again. If we think we've got God in a box of our own making, and God won't stay there, he insists on breaking out and saying, I'm up to something much grander than you can imagine. And if you trust me and proclaim me, the world can be the kingdom of God. And people can have life in all its fullness. And justice will prevail. And it will be a time of blessing for all creation. Amen.